Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Hi, and welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. We're happy to have you guys with us this week as we tackle just um, some current issues, but also have a great interview with you. But Phil, before we get to that, why don't you tell us what we have in store with our mailbag? Yeah, well, today we thought we would uh, change it up a little bit with the mailbag, given the fact that uh, a couple days ago, as of this recording, we had the election here in the United States. And as you and I have talked about, and as I'm sure that we both talked to a lot of people about, there's one thing that this election has brought that is universally believed and understood, and that's, that's really a divisive nature in our country, and quite frankly, around the world, from what I've seen on Facebook. Um, and it's something that I, I actually posted something on Facebook the other day that said something to the effect that, you know, I have a lot of very, very good friends who are very, very smart and who love very well, who disagree vehemently about almost all the major issues <laughs> that are out there. And I just look at my Facebook feed. I look at some conversations I've had, um, whether it's texting, whether it's talking to people um, in my class today. There's just this real, um, almost an unwillingness to even talk about the issues because people know that it's just going to be an ugly thing. And so what we want to talk about today a little bit is how can we engage these conversations? How can we come into this fray and not just get along and not just pretend like nothing's wrong, but actually engage in the divisiveness in a healthy way? that's loving, that's, that's also, you know, in, 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 in to whether it's with Christians, whether it's non-Christians, how can we engage in this divisive time in a healthy way that actually is constructive, that actually work, helps us to work together to really engage these issues and hopefully to come up with solutions where we can work together and we can love each other in the midst of these, you know, really in, disagreements about really important issues. And what does that look like in orphan care? What does that look like just in general in our society. So what, what do you think about that, Kelly? I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I remember the first time that I probably had to take a stand for my faith and really had a different opinion about a lot of different issues was when I was in grad school for social work. And the very fact that I labeled myself a Christ follower immediately had people opposing me and not that they really knew me or anything like that. And so that was probably my first step that we've, we've kind of lost the ability to have discussion and we, we just completely, um, stop having healthy dialogue. And for me, I think about how often we just have all these stereotypes of people and we come, um, you know, usually we hang out with people who have the same points of view that we do who the same lifestyle, the same choices. And so sometimes I think we just have to begin the process of entering into um, strategically relationships with with people who think differently than we are. And then it kind of humanizes Mm -hmm. that other point of view. It kind of gives a face to it. It kind of gives a perspective that might be different. And you then I think is when you can begin to see okay, this isn't just a talking head. This isn't just this um, out there um, thing. This really is 
this really is a person and this is, you know, they have thoughts and they have feelings and they've had situations that have brought them to this, this, this point of view maybe. And I think that's so evident in orphan care as well, um, where we see that breakdown of, of communication of, you know, sometimes we think of orphans as we don't have the face, we don't have the the experience, we've not seen it, and so it doesn't touch us. But when we maybe have seen it firsthand, we come at it from a very different point of view. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think it's it's the first step is really like, instead of just throwing a blanket Facebook post out, or it, it's really beginning to begin a dialogue with people, but you kinda gotta get out from behind the computer mm-hmm. and actually go meet people and, and be, be um, intentional with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so true. And I, I think also, um, something that is really hard for me because first of all, I'm a guy and secondly, I'd like to fix things and, um, empathy for me really isn't the top of my strengths. And so I think that there is a, there, especially when you come up with people that you not only disagree with, but you really don't understand their worldview. You don't understand where they're coming from. You don't understand their background and, and anything about them really, except what they think about a particular issue, whether that's an orphan care, whether that's an election, who they're voting for, whether it's, you know, the difficult issues. And I think the thing that God's been teaching me and the thing that I've really been working on more and more is just simply listening to people and just simply entering in, like you said, into their, into their pain. And and I think that both Gabe Lyons and Russell Moore recently talked about this issue that we need to lead with love. We need to lead with compassion and understanding of what these people are talking about. And sometimes the truth part won't come out for a little bit because we can't, if we, if we talk about, I've actually had two, just today, I had two conversations with people where I tried to offer some advice in how to engage their, you know, they were really people coming from totally different perspectives, totally different life circumstances, and they both had issues with our, you know, new president-elect here in the United States. And I tried to offer some, like, perspective on it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a big Trump supporter either. You know, I, you know, I just, I, but at the same time, I said, you know, try to offer some advice on it. And both of them didn't receive it at all. They basically said that didn't help mm-hmm. in various ways, in different language and different statements and whatever. And that really spoke to me very loudly. It was very much a, Phil, you don't need to offer that advice right now. They just need somebody to listen. They need somebody to blow off steam. They need somebody that can be there to hear them. I even have seen things on Facebook where people make a post and it says, you know, we welcome any comments that have empathy and show empathy. Empathy is welcome. Anything else will be deleted immediately. Mm. And those that's the type, I think, where we're at right now. Maybe in two months, maybe in six months, I don't know what it is. Maybe in a couple of days, it'll be a little different. I don't know. But that may be it, and that's something that we just need to read and really take a step back and say, do you want me to, is some of my comments, I have some thoughts, is that welcome right now? And maybe even ask that extra question. But at the same time, I think we can't be afraid to speak truth either, right? So we gotta make sure. But I think it's truth on all sides. And and I think like you said, entering in. And one thing I talked to my class about today, and it's something that we really need to think about, particularly in orphan care, it's very relevant to orphan care. And actually we talked a lot longer than we have today at my class on how is the election, uh, how does it implicate orphan care and how is orphan care, how is how are politics relevant to it? And, and I said, well, look at just the question of abortion. 
you know, which I'm, I'm very pro-life. I'm very much against the idea of abortion for many reasons. And I can talk to people about that specifically on a different, different time. But, um, I said, what if abortions were to stop tomorrow though? What if we just banned all abortions? Well, the answer is there would be a lot more orphans in our world because think about why people have abortions. Most is because they don't want that child for one reason or another. And it could be, you know, I say they don't want it. I mean, they, it could be the poverty. They just don't feel like they can possibly raise that child um, in, a, in a well, you know, for one reason or another. And so that would create a lot more orphans. Well, what would we do with that? Given the fact that with the orphans in our world today, we're struggling with what to do with those children. So you add, what was it, 50 million or so children have been aborted in the U.S., which is mm. just a tragic number. But if we have 50 million more children who are likely going to be orphaned or vulnerable, what do we do with that? So those are the questions we need to really wrestle with when we're just spouting off our views on things because the other side of that is, what are you going to do with all these kids that you're not loving well already, right? So there's yeah. some really hard issues and obviously not time to unpack those, but I think the point being we need to really think there is an other side. And I was talking to a professor about it and he said, for every problem that's solved, another problem arises. Right, and yeah. I just think about how with this election, how people's hope is in politics and people's hope is in legislation. And ultimately, I think as believers, our hope is in the Lord and it changes how we interact in these conversations. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, that's something that we really need to fully consider, too, is is how we are, um, you know, where, where we are putting our faith, where we are putting our trust, where we are putting um, uh, our hope. And I think that there I have seen that so much just with people freaking out about what if mm-hmm. Trump gets in? What if Hillary gets in? What if whatever happens? And you know, I, I just, as I, I've talked to people, I said, you know, we really need to read the Old Testament more and see that Israel had, you know, just a few good kings and God's hand was on them mm. always. And it's not always going to look like we want it to. It's not always going to be who we want in, but God is in control. And that's that pithy statement I understand a lot of times for some people. And I'm not saying to just rest in that in the sense of blindly without any thinking about, wow, what are we going to do and what's our role in that? But to understand that even in the midst of just seemingly awful circumstances, God can teach us things and we can learn things. And I, and I said to some, you know, I just think that no one person will be able to solve any issue, you know, that's major in our world today. No leader, nothing, uh, particularly in a country like the United States where there are checks and balances. And there are people that, you know, there are limits on that power and on that control. But I think even more so than that, if God wants to blot out an entire country, he can tomorrow. Yep. And so I think we need to take a step back and say, okay, what is important? What are, what do we really believe? And let's, let's be consistent in that all across the board. And as far as our question, I think we could go a long, lot longer, uh, but we don't have time today. But as far as the thing that we were just talking about today, I think it's important to just remember that in engaging other people, they may not believe the same thing we do, even if professed Christians may not believe mm-hmm. the same thing about that. And, they, and that may be the worst thing they could hear in that particular instance. And so to be careful with the, as far as the God is in control or any other statements such as that, um, it's absolutely true, but it's not necessarily what they need to hear at that moment. And we need to be 
aware of that and we need to be careful with our language. We need to be careful about the effect of our language, particularly when people are looking to us for how to react and how to move forward in this. But I think that we need to be honest with people. But at the same time, I think you and I both talking together right now, coming from a particular background, a particular worldview, the first thing that we need to do in all these instances is really try to understand who the people are on the other side of the conversation, where they're coming from, and um, where we go from there. Because until we can understand each other, I think it's going to be really hard to speak any truth into any situation. Absolutely. And I'm, I would love to hear from just our listeners of just how are you approaching uh, maybe the election results and, and what are the feelings you have and, and, and how do you feel like are some ways that we can learn from you of, of how to enter into these conversations in a way that's healthy and, and constructive. But I would love to um, introduce our guest. I am excited for you all to hear from Ian Forber Pratt. Um, Ian is not only an adult adoptee, but he is also um, the Director of Advocacy and Research at the Center of Excellence in Alternative Care for India. And uh, he founded the um, Foster Care India Initiative. And the things that he is doing in such a large large continent country is amazing and just what we're seeing him do. And so I'm really excited for you all to hear his story, hear his wisdom, and just to share him um, with all of you out there. Well, good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? I'm really well, Kelly. How are you? Very good. We want to welcome you to the Think Orphan podcast. I'm really excited for our listeners to hear your story and also just to share what is going on in India and how um, your organization is is working to uh, to work with in the orphan crisis, but also to bring about solutions on a much grander scale. So with that, why don't you tell um, our listeners just a little bit about your story and kind of what brought you into the orphan care realm? Sure. And I want to start just by thanking you, but also the listeners just about caring so deeply about this topic and, and being willing to, to think about what's happening here in India. Um, Because, you know, we have a sixth of the world population and we have, you know, some numbers say 20 million, some say 30 million uh, orphan children just in this country alone. Uh, and it's, it's, it's mind boggling, actually, when you think about it. Um, but I, I'll try to give just a 10,000 feet overview really quickly uh, about myself and how this, this work is happening and then tie it all back to just the sheer amount of children that we have in this country that are in need. Um, so I'm actually was, I, I was one of them, meaning that I was born in, in 1980 in Calcutta, uh, India, and was abandoned at day one. And so my birth records say born to unwed mother and father unknown. And I was adopted by a Canadian American family and grew up in, in Seattle for a little bit and then in, in Boston. Uh, and grew up in a wonderful family with uh, being in want of nothing, uh, but always felt like I had a duty to use that privilege and the wonderful gifts I'd been given in life uh, to give back to the country that gave me life. And so after learning about foster care and 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 the continuum of care, meaning what I believe is the full range of care and protection options for children, Um, I sold everything in 2011 uh, and packed three bags of clothes and shifted here to India 
to help and like myself uh, be connected with them. Tell us a little bit about where you landed in India and kind of what was that like? Did you know the language? Did you know, did you have any contacts? Kind of what was that like those early days when you moved to India? I literally knew nothing. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, But luckily I had created as much of an understanding as I could from the U.S., but when I hit the ground, I didn't know the language here. I didn't know kind of the nuances of settling in a new culture. Uh, it, it was tough. It was a really tough transition. But I was very lucky in the fact that because I'm from India, I got some credit, if you will, some credibility mm-hmm. for yeah. being from India. And um, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say this, but being a male helped a lot, too, in a mm-hmm. uh, culture that is very patriarchal in some way. Mm. Um, and so when I landed on the ground, I, the first thing I did was I did a tentative course in order to, to learn the language because I felt that in the development world and working with orphans around the world, a lot of times foreigners, so to speak, will come into a culture and slap down solutions. Mm-hmm. And what I believed is that true development looks like getting on the ground, learning the hearts and the breath and the, the life of the indigenous cultures and making sure that any work that's done to an empower a society comes from the actual needs of that society. Mm-hmm. And so I jumped head first into everything uh, with that goal in mind. So tell us a little bit about um, what led you to to kind of the foster care issue in India and why that's so prevalent of a need in in India. So, yeah, actually, it started with my connection with the foster care need in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I had started doing my master's in social work at uh, Washington University, the Brown School of Social Work in St. Louis. And in my first class, I was assigned a paper to write on the disproportionate amount of African-American children in the foster care system. And till that date, I had known some children in foster care. I had heard of foster care, but I really didn't understand the system itself. And so from that date on, I started learning about foster care and learning about how, as I had mentioned before, it fits into this continuum of care. And this continuum of care concept is the idea that children are best with families when safe and appropriate, their biological family. And then if not able to be with parents, then with relatives, if not able to be with relatives, then as close to their birth culture as possible, then after that foster care and adoption and as a last resort institutions. Mm -hmm. So when I learned about foster care in India, I learned that the boiled down concept of foster care, I believe, is beautiful. The idea is that children should have a temporary place to wait while permanency is being reached, either safe and appropriate reunification with family or adoption or some other plan, but that foster care is temporary in nature. And in the West, I learned very quickly that there are many things about foster care that are difficult, challenging, uh, some might say broken. Mm -hmm. But the essence behind it, I think, is amazing. So I decided, okay, foster care, I love the concept. Let me find out what's happening with foster care in India. 
And so when I did a Google search in 2007, foster care and India, the only thing that came back was how to adopt a dog or a cat. Mm. And so I said to myself, well, <laughs> it appears as if it doesn't exist. It appears that, that I've always, or it doesn't appear, it is, that I've always wanted to get back to India. And it clicked to me that that was going to be my vehicle through which I could get back. So I decided at that point, I was sitting in a Starbucks, actually, uh, and I wrote my first business plan for the organization Foster Care India that I founded on a napkin in Starbucks that said, okay, I am going to dedicate my life to selling everything, moving to India, and helping others move the needle towards family-based care in the country. Why do you think there was no foster care system or, or in, in India at the time? So just kind of could you back it up a little bit and just tell us a little bit about the orphan? I know you mentioned just the, the vast amount of numbers of orphan children in, um, in India, but Phil and I talk a lot about just defining the terms and what exactly when you say orphan and that number of 30 to 40 million in India, what exactly do you mean by orphan? Is this a double orphan? Is this a single orphan? Um, is it both? Um, and and kind of what is the, the state of these these orphans in India currently? And when you Googled it uh, and, and, and didn't find anything. Just straight up poverty. Mm-hmm. Families not being able to take care of their children. And the second is stigmatization. Women who are single or separated or divorced are still not thought of as being able to manage um, uh, by themselves and their their uh, ability to make money and to create a livelihood is often challenged or at least stunted in some ways by the way, ways that the way the culture is set up. So when I did that Google search for foster care and India, really the truth is is that not and this is an arbitrary number, but 90 95% of children or even more were just put into orphanages and forgotten about until 18. And then we had no idea where they went. Mm. So institution was really the first resort for these children. And these institutions very often were places that people from village areas heard, I can give my child to this institution and my child will get an education, will get, uh, um, you know, food, proper food, all that stuff, because they couldn't provide for them. And so what I have been very quickly realizing is that one of our main duties here in the country has to be, in my opinion, to help families stay together, Mm -hmm. help a widow with three children be able to provide for herself and keep her children with her or keep a family that loves their children so much that they think the best thing is to give their child to an orphanage to have the capacity to keep children with themselves. And as part of that work, sometimes there will be families that can't keep children with them. And so that's where foster care, adoption, and all these other um, things come in. But the condition on the ground in India right now, 2016, where we are all sitting, no matter where we are in the world, is that still institutions are the first resort for children and that the idea of family-based care is just starting to be formalized. Now, the hopeful part, I had mentioned that there's a hopeful part, is that 
in South Asia, in India, in many parts of Africa and throughout the developing world, the idea of family is lovingly and confidently ingrained in everything people do. Mm -hmm. The idea of foster care and family-based care is there from the beginning. Communities take care of the children that have been dispersed for whatever reason, whether somebody is passed on, et cetera, et cetera. But in our 2016 world, whether we like it or not, things are developing and the joint family in India is breaking down to nuclear families. And there is a huge need for formalized child protection to make sure that children and families are safe. And that's where we're headed as a country, but not just as a country, India, but as a region and not just as a region, but as a globe. I believe. Absolutely. I think uh, you have talked about that before, just about when you see these families uh, or even kids who've grown up maybe in more rural parts of India and even in the U.S. when they move from kind of that small community, uh, they're migrating to these larger cities. And so you lose a little bit of that community aspect um, and, and, and you, you start to see the breakdown of, of just that what was naturally being done. Correct. Absolutely. And what I believe that, that that's nuanced in all of that is that the government's responsibility grows exponentially. Mm-hmm. So uh, in India, for example, five, 10 years ago, if a, fa- if a problem happened in your family, in your joint family, maybe a mother, father pass on and they've got two children. If you went to the government and said, we need support, the government would have said, that's a family problem. Take care of it. But now in our developed world, what you're talking about, families kind of splitting up a bit and being geographically further from each other, as well as developmentally further from each other. A couple now, mother, father and two children that live in New Delhi, for example, or Mumbai, if they pass on. Their children have smartphones now and they've had access to Wi-Fi and they've had constant power and they don't want to shift back to the village with grandma and grandpa. And so the government responsibility exponentially increases to take care of those children and have provisions for them. It's almost backwards, you know, like when you think about just how it was being done or, you know, still is being done, but just that the community comes around, uh, the family comes around and cares for for a child that that finds themselves orphaned. Um, You know, we think in 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 the I guess the way of progress that things are getting better, but sometimes that's not always the case Um, when you see kids who are now in the, the where you're wanting the government in a sense to step in. So tell us a little bit about um, of just what what what's happened between the whiteboarding on a napkin uh, in Starbucks to today, kind of the story of of your work with uh, foster care India. <laughs> okay, great. So let's see if I can do this in a really <laughs> short amount of time. Um The big picture is that the approach very quickly became multidimensional care reform. And what I mean by that is that in a system where institution is the first resort, I wanted the organization Foster Care India that I was lucky enough to to found to be able to model on the ground 
in other options for children other than institutions. And in doing that, have a multi-dimensional approach to this care reform. And by, by multiple, uh, multiple dimensions, I mean not only a direct practice on the ground model, but also changing laws, building the capacity of government officials, and creating awareness in the community about these ideas of family-based care. So when I hit the ground in Rajasthan, the city of Udaipur in the state of Rajasthan in 2011, and I did that Hindi course and started up everything, I was lucky enough that UNICEF came on board and supported the organization, and we modeled the idea of foster care. And to do that, the first thing I did was that basically I went to the central government, sorry, the state government, and I asked them if I could help them write a law on foster care. Because I knew that local government officials would not be able to come on board with the idea without a legal framework. Mm -hmm. And uh, the state government wasn't ready uh, in 2011, 2012. But I just kept kind of proving to them, showing them evidence-based research, showing them examples on the ground of local people that were willing to be foster parents. And all of that came from awareness stuff that we were doing in the back end. Uh, sending a text message out to 30,000 people mm-hmm. or hiring a little bicycle that rode around town that said, do you want to be a foster parent and all those things. So in 2014, so that's three years after 2011, mm-hmm. the state government um, named me to a drafting committee uh, with a UNICEF representative and some government representatives. And we wrote the first law in the history of the state on foster care and got it passed. And then we had a working framework that we were able to then start foster care. So now Foster Care India, the organization has four foster homes that have been going for the past nine and a half to 10 months. Mm. And they're going exceptionally well. Uh, It's a range of lower middle class to middle class families. And it's a range of children from different circumstances. Some have a parent who has mental difficulties in some way or another. Some were abandoned and we haven't been able to find the parents, all these different range of things. Mm. Now, as all of that modeling was going on on the ground in regard to foster care, I realized that family preservation was super duper important. And how can we also work to keep families together? So we opened a community center called Parivar Jurao Kendra, which means Family Connection Center. And that Family Connection Center got a cohort of 366 families, 724 children. And we started case managing those families, but not giving them any money ourselves. We only connected them with existing government schemes and existing services. Mm. And that became unbelievably successful where we ended up in two years serving 22,000 different individuals with the idea of family preservation. Now, all of that going on at once, the goal was for it to be this kind of fun incubated model that people could see. Mm -hmm. But our work reached the national level quickly because the country was getting ready for this care reform, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And after the state guidelines were passed, I went to the central government, to all of India, to the minister named Menka Gandhi. She's the minister of the Women and Children's Development Ministry, which are the ones in charge of family-based care, adoption institutions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, let's write some guidelines on foster care. And she said, okay, we're already working on that. 
So I was lucky enough to be a chairperson of a working group. And in 2015, we passed the first guidelines on foster care for the history of the country. Mm. So that was exciting. And so what happened was I shifted up to the national level, even though I wanted to stay on the ground in Udaipur. Mm -hmm. My goal when I sold everything here was to hold hands with government and civil society to, as I said, move the needle in regard to care reform. So now I have been hired by this amazing organization in Southern Texas uh, called Children's Emergency Relief International as their national program director. Mm -hmm. And together, along with a couple other partners, an organization called Core Assets in the UK that does foster care work around the world and the Brown School of Social Work at Washington University, uh, we have founded what we call the Center of Excellence and Alternative Care of Children. Mm. And we are helping organizations like Foster Care India that I started and many other organizations that are now popping up doing foster care work to all join hands in this kind of beautiful web of innovation Mm. to pilot, to test, to create promising practice and to start actually getting children out of institutions and into families. Wow, that is That is such a remarkable amount of work that's been done in such a short amount of time, especially when you do consider just the vastness of India and as well as just the number of of children's and organizations and states and governments that you're dealing with. Tell us a little bit about kind of what where do you see um, the future? Kind of what what do you feel like are some of the next steps that you're that you're working on in in India? Well, uh, thank you. And that and that that really kind of transitions me directly to saying that my goal of all of this is that uh, I'm not the only one in any shape, any way, shape or form. Like mm-hmm. the goal and the, the view of all of this is that everyone gets the capacity and the tools and the resources they need to help the government to join hands, literally moving forward. So the, the, the situation we're at now uh, is actually a very um, precarious one because what we have now is amazing laws on the books. In regard to child protection in India, both at central level and now uh, starting at state levels, we've got some brilliant stuff on paper. But the capacity on the ground is not there. And it's not people's faults either. There are people on the ground that really want to work and get children out of institutions and into families, but they don't have the resources, the skills, and the exposure. So what the next steps are is... India is so unbelievably diverse. States are like different countries. Mm. And it's to create a platform, a bridge between policy and practice in the country. And that's what I'm trying to do. But again, I can't, nor do I want to do it alone. Mm. So what's happening in the country now is I just continue to bridge and network people together. And through that, everybody gets to use their respective strengths and wherever they are in the process of thinking through care reform to come together. And that's not without its challenges. There are huge, huge challenges, of course, in, in, in thinking, in ideologies, in political will, in resources that exist, and in plans and trajectory. All of those things are difficult pieces. But as long as there is public debate and dialogue in mm-hmm. this space right now, 
we can't help but have progress. Progress is a law of God. Mm-hmm. And everything is going to move forward in an absolutely beautiful and brilliant way in, in spite or, or during all of the challenges and successes. Mm. What are some of those hindrances that you're seeing just specifically um, in regards to, to foster care? I know, and really family preservation as a whole, I know those are probably two separate questions, but what, um, when you look at just the institution has been kind of the only option that a lot of families have had. Um, we already, we know that kinship care was happening um, on a very uh, organic level. That's kind of, it's what I heard you saying. That's really how things were handled in India or, or still are in a lot of ways. But what have been just the hindrances of, of maybe a family um, stepping in and taking in another child that may not be their own? Um, and what, what, are some of those barriers you're seeing as far as family preservation being more of an option? Yeah, those are, those are absolutely two different answers Mm -hmm. as well as intertwined answers. Mm -hmm. So to start with the last one talking about institutions, you know, as in with many developing nations, as we've seen around the world, when institutionalization is the only way of care and protection for children, or at least the high majority way, it's very difficult for that system to change. Number one, because it's become a habit, but also in that habit, there also have become some very bad practices. Mm. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that in India right now, all institutions cannot be gotten rid of right away. It's not possible. There has to be a transition and there has to be a multiple range of options, I believe, Mm -hmm. for children. But focus on the fact that family is best for children when safe and appropriate. And that's really, really important. Um, That transitions me into the answer to your first question, the idea about family preservation. When we first started polling people and surveying people and talking about the concept of foster care, the overwhelming response was, we believe foster care is a good idea, but we wouldn't do it ourselves. And the reason they wouldn't do that themselves is due to the stigmatization in society of having a child of unknown background in your home. Because in India, there is huge stigma about the hierarchical nature of society, period. Caste and religion and economic boundaries. But you know what? We like to think in the West that doesn't exist. It's it's alive and well in many, many communities mm-hmm. in, in the West. And so we're dealing with human nature here. And when you're dealing with human nature, if you look at social change research, there's a lot of people who have done a ton of research about how a community or a country or a state or whatever adopts a new idea. And some of that research shows that there are really clear benchmarks. For example, there's some evidence-based research out of Stanford University um, that's a little bit dated now, but it was made to be universal. Um, and the, the research says that if in a community, 5% of that community, just 5%, so you can relate it to whatever community you have, whether it's a, a, um, a club that you go to, if it's your children's basketball team, if it's your church group or your school. If you introduce a new idea to that community and 5% of the people buy into that idea, it's considered embedded into the society. 
So if you take Udaipur where I started and think that there are about 600,000 people in Udaipur, once 5% of those people bought into the idea of foster care, it was embedded. And buy-in means they don't have to become foster parents themselves. They just have to be willing to talk about, positively advocate for the idea. Then this evidence-based research out of Stanford says that if just 20% of the community buys into an idea, it's unstoppable. There's enough critical mass behind it. Mm -hmm. There are enough people that have enough oomph behind them that it can move forward. Now, there's one other piece of information that's super interesting. In order to get 5% buy-in in a community, you need at least 50% awareness. And awareness means people could hate the idea. So let's talk about Udaipur again. Out of 600,000 people, if 300,000 people, 50%, know about foster care, just know about it. They could tell you and I that foster care is the most horrible idea ever, but they're aware. If they're aware, automatically 5% buy-in happens. And that 5% buy-in is embedded and helps us move to 20%. And that, if you understand that social change, communities are going to resist any type of new thinking and any type of care reform. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. Because in that resistance becomes solidarity. It comes out of that. It's human nature. And so as India, as a whole of 1.2 plus billion people, Mm -hmm. if we try to take on the entire country, we'll go crazy, literally crazy. Mm -hmm. But if we go community by community and look at both macro and micro social change and have a lot of fun bridging those things, we're unstoppable because it's part of development. And the greatest part of all of that is it comes back to the fundamental thought that children are best in families. And there has not been one person that I've met that doesn't agree that children are best in families. Mm -hmm. They might think that care and protection of children right now in our current capacity is safer in institutions. They might think that it's very dangerous to have children in foster homes because what if they are exploited or abused or whatever. But then the argument comes along that those things happen in biological families as well. And that our responsibility as a country, as a community, as a globe is create systems that first and foremost keep children safe. Mm -hmm. And once we do that, I mean, everything's moving forward. Yeah, and it's obvious even just from the amount of numbers that you shared earlier, you know, for foster care families, um, as opposed to just the amount that you already have in family, your family preservation, um, you know, work. And so I think that's pretty that's very eye opening and very revealing just that uh, families do, for the most part, want to stay together. And just coming from that framework really allows you to do just an enormous amount of work. Are you finding with family preservation, um, like I know you said that you your organization was really just a connector to resources that were already in place. What are some of the things that maybe aren't in place um, that you feel like are needed to help families stay together? I mean, there are the, one of the biggest things is mental health services and counseling. That's a huge gap in our country because mental health is so stigmatized. Um, and even just proper counseling, for example, a widow who is grieving 
and is having a difficult time just supporting her children just because of the grief and those things. There isn't counseling services. There isn't kind of connection services. Um, another example is that there there is generally not a friendly tone in a lot of government offices. So if a widow is um, eligible for a widow sponsorship scheme, she might go to a government office, but there, you know, she needs a death certificate and she needs this thing and that thing. And there isn't a loving kind of help for her to say, okay, yeah, you don't have this signed. Okay, you have to go to this office and get this signed and ex- explaining the process. Mm. To be honest with you, the positive thing about India is that there are a lot of resources available. It's access to those resources awareness of those resources and the mental health gaps. Those are the three big, big things. Mm. Do you see that's that's an interesting concept that uh, just the connection and we see that here in the U.S. I think you really see it around the world of just a mental mental illness and orphan children, you know, and just in family preservation. Do you feel like that is a a kind of a attainable goal to have uh, more resources for foster or for mental health services uh, come about? Is that part of one of your initiatives or, or is it just a slow, (laughs) a slow progress towards change? Um, No, there are brilliant people throughout India that are working at light speed on that topic. Um, And I've met just amazing people that are working in the disability realm Um, and the mental health realm and all of those pieces. But, I mean, in a country this big, Mm -hmm. social change takes a long amount of time. Um, But one of the big keys is the connections that those of us like myself who are working in the child protection space Mm -hmm. and the care reform space and that space should be working with the people that are working in mental health reform and those working in... um, you know, any of these pieces of stigmatization and all of these different things. Um, so uh, communication and connections and networking and those things is one of the, the key things um, in a developing setting, but especially here in India. I find that thinking has traditionally been very siloed, mm-hmm. meaning that it's just in its own little kind of space and doesn't interact with the other people that are moving forward. And so that's one thing that a lot of us are stressing and working Mm -hmm. on in a big way. Mm, Just the connections. Can you tell me just a little bit? I know a lot of our readers and some of readers, listeners that that we have um, been hearing from is just the use of the word orphaned um, and just how often um, that term has not been well defined. And are you seeing um, and, and just a desire to really move away from the word orphaned? Is that um how are you guys defining that in your work in India? Um, do you, or, and really just personally, I would love to know kind of what your thoughts are on using the term orphan for a child who may still have parents who uh, who are could be in the picture. Yeah, I mean, uh, our legal definition here in India is single or double orphan. And double orphan means no, uh, both parents not in the picture. And single orphan means one or more, uh, one parent in the picture. Um, but I haven't found a replacement that I can get on board with mm-hmm. yet to orphan. Yeah. Um, so I, I do believe that 
it, the word itself has a lot of negative and vulnerable and uh, the stigma attached to it, this poor orphan, which is not the case. So I believe either some sort of, of replacement or some other terminology needs to come up with. But I've sat with so many people and talked about so many things of how can we replace it? Can we say children in need of care and protection? Or can we do this? Or can we do that? I believe that there just needs to be a lot of changing of mindsets and stigma surrounding if it's a legal definition of, you know, a child doesn't have one parent or doesn't have both parents that's that fundamentally doesn't change their identity as a child mm-hmm. and i think that it's more of a stress of childhood and that in childhood there are n number of vulnerabilities there and so how can we have orphan not be an identity but rather just maybe something that also you know helps them avail of a service whatever else so for me, it's it's a, a point of debate as well. I'm not sure. Uh, but I know that I haven't heard any replacement that I'm really on board with yet. As an adult adoptee, um, how how did identity play itself out for you? Um, just as I mean, obviously, you have returned back to India um, and are doing an amazing work in India. So is that part of your journey of just reconciling being an adopted child? Yeah, most definitely. Um, uh, I, I always kind of struggled with uh, identity, as many uh, international adoptees do, but as many people do in general. You know, and when you shift to a new culture, say, for example, you know, I grew up in, in pretty much uh, suburban kind of white America, if you will, and if I had shifted to any other community, even within America, that was a different ethnic breakup, mm-hmm. I would be kind of feeling like my identity was challenged or at least there was a need for an adjustment or whatever. Mm-hmm. But for me, as an international adoptee uh, growing up in the U.S., I found that the U.S., um, like many places, but the U.S. in an extreme way, likes to, to, to force people into boxes. Mm-hmm. You've got to be in a box in some way or another. And I always was kind of confused about what box that was, where I should be and and how I should identify myself. Um, And so my search for identity uh, definitely had a huge part of India in it because I was a brown person living in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I was in an amazing family, uh, but my parents were a different color than I was. (laughs) And so... My trip back to India and this amazing journey is all part of me just seeking how I can celebrate my multiple identities and use the privilege in each one in whichever way I can. Mm. I love how you worded that, especially as an adopted mom to um, of a son from another culture and another continent and uh, just celebrating the multiple identities and using the privilege in each of those to bring about positive change. Um, that's That should be all of our hopes and desires. I think no matter if you're an adopted child or not, um, how do you feel like um, and, and we kind of end our our podcast with the same questions. And so I'm going to pose those to you. Um, what is a book or a podcast or just kind of what you're reading and and kind of sinking into that is influencing your thoughts and your 
your um, your dreams and your hopes for for India um, in regards to orphan care. Is there a certain book or or something you can share with our listeners that uh, we're, we're, we love it because we get to add to our reading list constantly? Um, but is there a book that stands out to you? Yeah, I don't know. A book doesn't come to mind right now, but the the, the organization called Lumos that's run by uh, that was started by the author of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling. Mm. On their website is this really wonderful uh, three-minute video, kind of podcast-type, whatever, mm. animated video, talking about families, not orphanages. Mm. And it's really fascinating and beautiful take on that subject. So right now, that's, that's been kind of somewhere that I've been turning for, uh, tuning to mm. for information and learning more about the mm. concept across the globe of, of helping countries uh, and communities. Um, focus more on on keeping children safe and families. Mm. I have to check that out. That's that's an interesting uh, place to find it. I love it. What about what's a who's an individual maybe that's influenced you in this area of orphan care um, that that has shaped kind of your thoughts about how to address the issues and kind of move forward into them because you are definitely moving uh, moving the ball forward as we say uh, in India as far as orphaned and fostered children. Um, but what's an individual that has had just a huge impact on you in those regards? Yeah, there's there's a, an amazingly wonderful woman named Dr. Kiran Modi. Um, and she runs an organization here in India called Udayan Care, uh, U-D-A-Y-A-N. Um, and she thought of foster care uh, many years ago. And she started this organization and she didn't believe at that time that India was ready for foster care. And I think she was right. Mm. Um, so she started these group home models, um, a bit like the SOS children's uh, villages, if you've ever heard of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's got what she called Udayan Girls, which is a Udian home, where she's got a number of girls with a host mother. Um, and she's recently been very active in the aftercare space and in the the growing of the idea of foster care and is actually starting um, a foster care department in her organization. Um, and the thing about this woman that's inspiring to me is that she has dedicated her entire life to just helping India move forward in regard to families and children. Mm. And she's gotten very little credit for it, to be honest. Mm. Um, But every day this woman works, you know, 10, 15 hours just helping children and families. And so she's somebody that's definitely uh, inspired me and shown me that this is not um, Westerners coming in and Mm -hmm. doing this work, but it's indigenously here. Um, and it's just taking more people coming together with uh, voices and influence to get it um, from idea to to uh, action. Mm. I love that. I, I feel like um, there's so many unsung heroes who are doing the work that we never hear uh, who they are. And I find that to be in many, many places across the U.S. as well as across the world. Um, well, Ian, I'm so glad that we were able to chat. And I feel like I would love for you to come back on the podcast um, in the future, just because I feel like there's a, such a realm of things that we still could discuss, especially I'm, I, I want to hear more about just the aftercare that you just brought up of just all of these children 
children who are aging out of institutions um, and how, um, I don't know, that just that just kind of sparked my interest. So I would love to chat with you more about that. But uh, we just appreciate the work you're doing and and the groundbreaking um, things that are happening in India to bring about uh, better care and practices for orphaned and vulnerable children. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Well, and thank you. And again, I'll, I'll end just like I started. I think that the work that you're doing and that every listener here is thinking through, uh, I believe that it just takes people thinking about it. I mean, I believe our, our number one important thing in this world for everyone, period, is raising children well. Mm. And so people who are parents and raising children and all those things, I believe that's enough in this world. Mm-hmm. But those next steps of having public debate and talking about these things, then naturally finds people that are willing then to go one step further into action. And so I'm just so inspired to, to be a part of this community um, and, and to be able, you know, to, to be able to share these these fun things that are happening on the ground here in India. Mm. Well, you definitely chose just a small place to start, like India. Um, yeah. You, know. <laughs> you were definitely dreaming big, and I just love it. So, well, Ian, thanks for being on our podcast, and we just pray God's best and uh, for you and your organization and the people that you're working with as you move forward. So we hope you have a great day. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Blessings to all. Well, I know you guys learned a lot from Ian and just enjoyed his story and all of the things that he is doing in India and just the um, the the way that one small idea is just taking off. But Phil, what stood out to you? What are some things that uh, you want to share? Yeah, well, I mean, Ian is just a guy that blows me away. Um, first of all, he's just a fun guy who is easy to have a conversation with. So that, that alone is, mm-hmm. is so welcome and just, just pure joy. Um, the second thing is if there is a second interview, I want to do it cause I'm totally jealous that you got to do that interview. Um, the third thing is, as you said, this guy is unbelievably inspirational as far as what God is doing through one man is awesome. Um, there's so much more to his story that I wish you know, we could just have him share for like three hours and tell his story because I've been able to talk with him a few times and just hearing like, I mean, he sat on the steps of City Hall and he's like, I was just going to play Angry Birds until they talked with me, you know, and, and that's the type of guy, this guy, he's just, I was going to sit there for 20 days if I had to. And he just knows what's supposed to happen and, and he just goes for it. And that's something that's super inspirational, especially when you see the impact he's had. It's not just throwing darts. It's not just, you know, throwing things and hoping something happens. Very intentional. The things that they've been able to do in India are incredible. And he's, you know, been asked to go talk to UNICEF. He's been, you know, going to Switzerland, going to all these different places to talk with other people about what they're doing in India. So it's not just India. This guy's doing amazing stuff around the world. I encourage everyone out there to look more into his to the work that they're doing in India. If you're doing work in India, get in touch with Ian because he is a total collaborator. He knows that he can't do it on his own. I mean, he's trying to because no, no one, not, not many other people are coming alongside, but he's just, you know, working his butt off. And he's also a family man that's doing some, you know, great things, raising, you know, his kid and, and he's got a beautiful wife. And, you know, and so this guy is someone who is a, a model that we can look to for, um, 
you know, how to make things happen. And, you know, he's not a guy who has always had the massive connections either. It's just a guy who is faithful to the cause, consistent, you know, very, you know, he perseveres. He's a guy who just says, I'm not going to give up till it happens. And, and so I, that's why I just really loved what he talked about and everything that he talked about. Um, there's so much more to each one of those stories, as you said at the end there. Um, and, and so I feel that same way with a lot of our uh, guests, but particularly what he's doing in a country that is, it's so hard to work in India and to see what he's been able to do in just a few short years is just nothing short of a incredible, um, incredible work. Absolutely. And I know that he um, has more things on the horizon and I don't think he ever um, gives up or ever is continuing to move forward and really has the best interest of of vulnerable kids in India. Um, And I'm just excited to kind of be a and not a participant necessarily, but just someone from the sidelines to cheer him on. And I would just say, if you are someone that's early in this work um, or someone who has just a huge audacious dream of how you can uh, bring about change, um, I think Ian would would be a great person to reach out to and just um, learn from. So with that, Phil, what do we have from our thoughts from the field today? Yeah, today we have, it was really something that uh, when I heard kind of the end of your conversation with Ian, I thought of this little snippet I got from David Nowell with Hope Unlimited, and it was at the uh, KFO Orphan Summit earlier this year, and just him sharing what he thinks is one of the biggest issues we're facing and, and really how we can address it. And so, um, here it goes. David Nowell, Hope Unlimited for Children. I think one of the greatest issues that we're facing right now is helping children transition from whatever type of care they are in to independent living. It takes a different type of very thoughtful, very intentional programming to help them make that change from living where they're dependent upon someone else providing for them to where they're out on their own. And I think as orphan care providers, we must think about those kind of issues and how we're going to help kids get to where they need to be. We hope you enjoyed our show today. We'll be back next week with Phil and Kelly Recommends. And we would ask if you could just take a minute to go to iTunes and rate our podcast. That helps other people find our podcast and just gets the uh, the show out there. And if you have any questions or want to know about the links that were shared today, you can find those on our show notes at the thinkorphan.com website. And there you can leave any kind of questions, any comments. We would love to hear from you just to hear your thoughts about uh, the things we talked about today. And also um, just an encouragement to, to us of maybe some things that you're learning as well. So thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.